in the heat of the day, in the full, bright burn, the Middle Eastern sun, he sat by the door of his tent. Like he often did, he was sitting there contemplating, thinking, surveying the land. He was encamped by some incredible trees, the oaks, the terebinth of Mamre. It was where he had moved after he and his nephew parted ways. Lot went east to the Green Valley of Sodom, and he, Abraham, went west to this place, to this place of trees where he set up an altar. Well, while he was there sitting in the afternoon sun, surveying the landscape, the Lord appeared. But he appeared as three. Now, Abraham recognizes that the Lord has come, and so he says, Lord, stay, don't, don't pass, stay, let's, let's eat together. Come, let's, let's go to the table, let's eat and let's fellowship. And so the Lord does, he stays, they eat, they converse, they have fellowship. And it's this fascinating, incredible story, it's found in Genesis chapter 18. Now it's not our key text today, but it sets the stage well. See, the Lord visits, but he comes and he visits in the form of three now, there's a famous painting by a Russian painter named Andrei Rublev, and it's called The Trinity. You might have seen it. Here's what it looks like. It's a fascinating picture. You can see there the, the three um, at the table, centered around the table. And what's fascinating is the lines, the perspective that the artist drew in here. It's called reverse perspective or inverse perspective. So things actually kind of get bigger as they go back. It's reverse of what we would normally think. It's not, it's not linear. But the reason why uh, this technique is used is it's used to make the picture not so much like a window that you're looking through something at, but as a portal to draw you in. The lines bring you in. And the whole idea is the effect is that you are sitting there with Abraham dining Having fellowship with the triune God, it just brings you in. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The brilliance of God's image bearers to show forth his glory. Staggering. See, the culture of the kingdom of God is one in which we dwell together with God and dwell with each other. It's a kingdom in which we are known by God and know God. A kingdom in which we are known and which we know others. It is a life of life together with God and his people by the power of his spirit that is present within us, that has knit us together as a people, as a people who are brought into his living love. But there's another kingdom in this world, and its image is less of a table of fellowship and, and more of a fist-hit mirror, shatters, shards, Broken bits, pieces, distorted, deformed images. And the kingdom that I'm speaking of here is the kingdom of self. The kingdom of self. And we live in a culture, in a world overwhelmed by what has been called expressive individualism. Sociologist Robert Bella used a phrase, expressive individualism, in a famous book that was put out in 1985 called Habits of the Heart. 
And in short, expressive individualism is the view that the highest good, the greatest virtue of humanity is our individual freedom, our individual happiness. It is self-definition and self-expression. We author ourselves, we create ourselves, and then we express that self to the world in hopes that they will then validate us. Now, one of the best ways to talk about this is a quote here. Um, So I'm going to quote Yuval Levin. His words are are really helpful. This is from his book. It's called The Fractured Republic, Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism. came out in 2016. And here's what Yuval Levin says. And as I read this, think, is is this what I experience? Is this a, a descriptor of the world in which we live? He says, the ethic of our age has been aptly called expressive individualism. That term suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in a society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights. And it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. Let, let me summarize that. Let me make it shorter. This is the you-do-you way of being, right? You've heard that, you-do-you which is essentially saying, hey, you just be whoever you want to be, no accountability, just you do you, your authenticity, so to speak, is what is most important. But here's, here's the thing. The great irony is that such an individualistic take on reality and this enthronement of the self actually disintegrates our humanity. It breaks us apart and it leaves us lonely. It leaves us sick in soul. It leaves us deluded, living in deception. Now, one of the things COVID in 2020 and 2021 powerfully highlighted is that we are relational beings. I don't have to prove this to you. You you know it. There's a givenness to this. We are relational beings. We need. We require. We are wired for community. And when we don't have it, it undermines our flourishing. We are designed for life together. We are designed for life together. Now, there's a whole wave of recent research that shows how social separation is is bad for us in so many ways. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us some data, some studies, some surveys, just to get some of these thoughts floating in our head before we move forward. First one is from the Journal of Social Science and Medicine. It's a study by Ye Luo and, and a number of other individuals. And and here's the the main thought. Individuals with less social connection have disrupted sleep patterns. They have altered immune systems and not altered in the good way. There's more inflammation coursing through their body. Uh, More inflammation coursing through their body and higher stress hormones just pushing through their system. Physiological facts. Another recent study found in the B&J journals called Loneliness and Social Isolation as Risk Factors for Coronary Heart Disease and Stroke. I know you all want to grab that and read that tonight before bed. Fascinating reading, but it is. It's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. What it found, it showed that isolation increases the risk of heart disease by 29% and increases stroke by 32%. 
Another analysis, this one found in Sage journals, and, call, and it's called Loneliness and Social Isolation, a Risk Factor in Mortality, a Meta-Analytic Review, another fun one, good reading. You guys are jealous of my reading this past week, I can tell. You can tell. The pooled data from 70 studies and 3.4 million people found that socially isolated individuals had a 30% higher risk of dying in the next seven years. And this effect was largest in those in middle age. It's interesting. Loneliness also can accelerate cognitive decline in older adults, and isolated individuals are twice as likely to die prematurely as those with more robust social interactions. Also, socially isolated children have significantly poorer health 20 years later, even after controlling for other factors. All told, loneliness is as important a risk factor for early death as obesity and smoking. And another article, this one from The Atlantic, entitled How Social Isolation is Killing Us from December in 2016. The author, Drew Kuhler, writes these words. A great paradox of our hyper-connected digital age is that we seem to be drifting apart. Increasingly, however, research confirms our deepest intuition. Human connection lies at the heart of human well-being. What a sentence. Human connection lies at the heart of human well-being. Uh, you know, what this shows us is, as my, my wise brother pointed out to me earlier, is what this shows us is that it's healthier to eat Krispy Kreme in community than veggies alone. It's just, thanks, thanks, Bri. That's, that's, okay, there we go. Uh, in a culture of self, one of the most counter- formative cultural practices that we can do is engage in life together. And so our third apprenticeship practice that we're going to dive into today is the practice of life together. Now, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to look at the what, the why, and the how. Okay, that's our flow. The what, the why, and the how. What is life together? Why is life together essential? And how how do we practice this life together? So let's get on into it. What? What is the practice of life together? Well, it's not simply being around other people. It's not simply being with other people. You can be with other people in a crowd or all sorts of scenarios where you're with them, but they're not for you. You're not for them. Your lives aren't intimately wound together. See, the Christian practice of life together is not just a sociological thing. It is a spiritual reality. It's different. It's wonderful. It's mysterious. It's glorious. So here's how we're going to qualify it. Um, life together. Life together is living in a confessing community of knowing and being known. Now we'll, we'll open that up. So what does that, what does that mean? Life together is living in a confessing community of knowing and being known. Well, this means to live one's life as a part of a community of, of true life together is confessing, confessing your sins to, to one another because we've confessed Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So it is a way of living, a practice that confesses Jesus Christ as Lord over all creation, confessing our need for salvation and our need for transformation and sanctification, becoming like him, 
Now, by the way, the word confess literally means to, to say the same word. So to confess that he is, is Lord is to say the same word that reality is speaking. It's to live in accordance with the truth. Or to confess our sins is, is to, to, live, uh, to, to live with congruency. That what's happening inside is expressed outwardly and saying, this is the reality I need. I need help. I have sinned against you, my brother or sister. So it confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a life of confessing sins to him and one another. But it's a life of being known by God and knowing him. To be a follower of Jesus means you know this God because of who Jesus is. So it is being in a community where you know God and he knows you. You are his children. We are his kids. And it's to be part of a community that that is knowing each other. And we are known by each other. And in that knowing, we grow into Christ's likeness because of his spirit moving along us as love is enfleshed in this community. Bonhoeffer says it beautifully. He talks about how the church is Jesus' body in the world. The body of Christ takes up space in this world. That's the consequence of the incarnation, Bonhoeffer said. Jesus came. He took up physical space in this world with DNA, with blood and bone and flesh. And he ascended. And he's given us a spirit, and now his body is still alive and moving in blood and bone on this earth. His body is the church. And it's in this true community and this gift of being part of the church that, that we come to know more and more who we are as we know others and the spirit moves among us. In life together, you're not anonymous. You're not nameless. You have a story And we need to learn to tell that story in light of his story and the story of redemption he is telling. So, you are not living life together if you are not growing and knowing God through knowing his people and knowing yourself and letting yourself be made known in community by the power of the Spirit. You could be part of a club or part of a crowd, but that's different than life together in the Spirit. So here's what John says. Listen to these amazing words. 1 John chapter 1. Pick up at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaim. Pause real quick. John's excited. He's excited. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. See, this Jesus called John and a number of his friends to be his apprentices, to be with him, to abide with him, and to obey his words so that they would become like him. And John, John's saying, we were with him. Like, we ate, we ate food together. We high-fived. We, we hugged. We, we walked alongside each other. John looked at the in-flesh Son of God with his own eyes. So he goes on. Okay, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. The Son was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The Son came in the flesh. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Oh, I love that. Listen, listen to those corporate words. Our joy, our joy may be complete. 
See, John is part of a confessing community, a community of those who confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God who was with the Father, who came down to earth to reveal the Father and to make a way to open up the gate, open up the door that we would then be brought back to the Father, be forgiven, cleansed, and have his Spirit living within us that we might dwell with him forever. It's through this Jesus and because of his ministry that we can have fellowship with the Father and therefore have fellowship with each other. Eternal life is to know him, to be in fellowship with him. Now, John is part of a fellowship of those who are in fellowship with God. So let's keep going. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And another pause, that's an interesting statement. Practice the truth. So often we, we've abstracted truth. It's just something that happens in, in the head or in the clouds. But truth is actually something that you practice. Truth is something that you live out. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so John confesses that God is good through and through. All light, no darkness. He's not shady. He's not shifty, but righteous and beautiful all the way through. And to live a life with him, to dwell with him, we are to then walk with him, to walk in the light. He empowers us to do so. And to have this life together with him means we have life together with each other. And we can have this life together with him and with each other because, because of the blood of Jesus. Because he has cleansed us from our sins. Because he has forgiven us and then breathed his spirit into us, making us family. Remember, we talked about this last week. Um, to have the spirit of Jesus in us is to have the spirit of adoption. And that spirit cries out, do you remember? Abba, Father. We cry out, Abba, Father, because he is our Father. The Spirit of the Son now lives within us. And if he's my Father by the Spirit, if he's your Father and your Father, and he's our Father, what does that make us? Family, brothers, sisters. Like, <laughs> sorry, we're family. <laughs> Deeply bound by the blood of the Creator. The deepest of all bonds. And if we're to live together in this newfound life, Together, we have to be honest. There's no hiding. There's no hiding here in the light. We are exposed, but not in a shaming way. In a healing way. See what John says in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful we should say this with a smile. He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, we are a people who live in reality and who acknowledge our need. We confess our sins to God and, and to one another. A life of practicing life together in Jesus is a life of radical honesty and great joy that you can live together. It is a life where we help each other unmask. It is a life where we help each other shed self-deception. It is a life 
together in which we help each other with all the, the one another's of Scripture. It's a life mediated by the Spirit to help us live well in God's world. Living in the ordinary, the earthy, the, the everydayness with others takes love from being some kind of abstraction into being incarnate, into taking on flesh and being something that is, that is done. It is in a Christ-confessing community that we confess our sins, that we are forgiven by others. It is in this kind of community that we practice patience, you know, with that other child of God who talks too loud or is a close talker, or they like eat with their mouth open, or you just don't like their way of doing things. Like, it is how we learn to love them and extend grace to them and be conformed to the image of Christ by living in community, letting our, our, our lives bump up against each other and letting the Lord do something beautiful with them. It's here that we can practice long-suffering and empathic listening and prayer. We can serve each other, wash each other's feet literally, metaphorically. It's where we can outdo one another and honor all these commands of Scripture. And it's where we can hear the Word of God over and over again. We need to hear the Word of God from the lips of brothers and sisters. We're like sieves, like colanders. The water just like pours through those. Like the truth of who we are and who God is just pours through us. And we need to hear it again and again. Tell me again. Tell me again, who am I in Jesus? Tell me again the glories of what our Lord has done. Tell me again. We need to hear it over and over again. Uh, I got to spend some time with my, my friend uh, Laren around the fire pit this past Thursday and it was a tell me again thing. Tell me again. We, we talked about the gospel and the scriptures in this church community and reminisced and, and I left with joy in my soul remembering who I am and who God is. We need it. Now, why? Why is life together essential? Well, that question's a little silly, honestly. It's a little bit like asking why is water necessary for a marlin or a trout or a yellowtail? Like, why? Because that's where they live. That's where they flourish. That is a venue in which their flourishing happens based upon how they are created, right? So it is with us. The venue in which we flourish and live is relationship with God and his image bearers. So let's go back to Genesis we are made in the image of our God. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man, this just hit me in a new way. He talks about the domains of the creatures. And the implicit connection here is the domain of us as image bearers is to live in relationship with him and each other. Oh, okay, moving on. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We're made in the image of God. We are made in the image of a God who's a community of love within himself. He's not a lonely God, an isolated God who had to create creatures in order to, to love he was love, ever was love, is love, and ever will be love. John says, God is love. Okay? So God is love. He is a community in and of himself. Now in that garden, we, we find out that it was not good for man to be alone. God made Adam first, and it's not going so well. Everything is not as it should be. So God creates Eve. 
the woman. So there is fellowship among his image bearers. He made a community of likeness and difference for fellowship, which again echoes intimations of his likeness and difference, Father, Son, and Spirit. He made this community of image bearers. And you go further in the story, well, what happens? Sin shatters community. Adam and Eve mistrust God. They listen to a a false narrative. And what happens? Well, things break. But here's, here's what happens after things break. This is so cool, right? So they hide from one another, right? Adam and Eve, they, they hide from one another in shame. And what, is, what does God do? Well, true community then comes to meet them in their shame, right? Because God is true community. True community comes to meet them in their shame. And God says, where are you? What is God, what is this true community doing? He's drawing them out of their hiding. He's drawing them out of their hiding. That's what happens in true community. We are drawn out of our hiding. We are designed to know and to be known by God, to dwell with him. We are designed to know and to know others in loving communion. And our flourishing is found in this presence of these presences and in this presence, we are to live out this calling of living in love. And so in, in confessing community, we are called by God to come out of our hiding and into healing. We are called in this community of ours to come out of hiding and into healing. It is in community that we are healed of our traumas and all the relational ruptures that happen in our family of origin. Or maybe last week at work or at home or maybe even here in the church community. Because here's what happens. Sin shatters intimacy and then shame shields us from intimate communion. Sin shatters intimacy and then shame shields us from intimate communion. Out of our wounding that we feel deeply, we self-protect. We put up shields so we can't be hurt again. Which is why C.S. Lewis famously said in his book, The Four Loves, to love anything at all is, is to be vulnerable Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. To love it is to be vulnerable. This is why Satan works so hard in this world to buffer us from true community. Because he knows that it is God's presence in the presence of spirit-filled believers in a community committed to vulnerability because we've been forgiven, he knows that it is in those places that we have to deal with our shadow selves, that we have to confront our darkness. He knows that it is in those places in love that we will be lovingly held accountable. And in those places, we will have to confess our need and speak the better word, speak the true story that he is king. He knows that it is in those environments that we know others and we find out who we truly are as an image bearer. And so Satan deploys all these different barriers to true community. Now there's lots of ways he does this, but I'm distilling it down to three words just, just as a helpful framework for us. And it's simply this, deception, distraction, and destruction. These are barriers to true community. So let's, let's work through these. Deception. Look, you don't, you don't need church. Like, this is between you and your creator. 
this is a, this is a private thing, and you're, and you're a private person. You don't need the mess of all that stuff. This is between you and, and him. And besides, online, like it's, it's good enough. I mean, you're getting the information. It's efficient. It's comfortable. You can get what you need. You can learn from afar. Like all these deceptions, they just overtake us. But the, the problem is the church isn't about information or data transmission. Church is about transformation. Life together is about embodying love. And love, I will tell you, is rarely made up of the stuff that is efficient or comfortable. It's messy. And here's another deception. Shame. Yeah, you should go to church. But you're too dirty. You're too dirty. If they knew, if they knew what you thought about this week, man, if they knew your past, if they knew what you did, there's no way they would welcome you into their arms. There's no way. Look at all the pretty people and their smiles. They got it together. You're the one who doesn't. Right? See how the deception works? Or here's the other one. Yeah, go to church. Yes, but, but clean it up first. Get all your stuff cleaned up. And once you get it cleaned up, then you go, right? He kicks the can down the road to a place that you'll never get to. Distraction. Don't have time. Don't have attention. This is the bit of your vision is full of the things of this world. Your calendar, your affections are full of the things of this world. And I want to push in on, on something here really briefly. This happens often like this. You know, in this season, in this season, it, it, we can't really come. We can't be engaged together because here's the deal. Like, we want to we set up our kids for success. So we're doing this on Sundays, and we're doing this on Saturdays and Wednesdays. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a busy season, but we want to set our kids up for success, and eventually we'll, we will come. <laughs> Please hear this in love. If you want to set up your kids for success, don't model to them that being with God via the presence of his people through his spirit in a gathered body of people is somehow optional and somehow should be kicked down the road and other things can be prioritized over it. Don't do that. So often what parents in our hurried culture think is setting their kids up for success is sabotaging their spiritual flourishing. Sabotaging it. That's distraction. And there's other distractions. Don't have time, but there you go. Visual example, distractions. Okay, moving on. Destruction. Satan uses the sin of people in the church to wound and to sabotage the church. This is the, are you kidding me? No thanks, bunch of hypocrites. They're after my wallet. That's about it. They don't care about me. This is the church hurt category. So let's be honest. Church hurt category. Anybody have church hurt? Ah, come on. Like, let's be honest. Anybody have church hurt? Like, this is like where most people put up both arms. I'm like with the orange things, like the airport. Yes, yes, this way. Church hurt. Load it there. There's just a ton of it. I have so much church hurt. And I have caused church hurt. And for that, I'm thankful for God's grace on me and your grace and some of the conversations that we have had for reconciliation. But here's the deal. Forsaking the church because of church hurt is like never eating food again because you had food poisoning one time. 
It does not make sense. Your distaste of it in the short term will destroy you in the long run. It's not wise. Ever heard a bad cover band? Ever heard a bad cover band? I saw one this past week. It was terrible. This guy was doing one of Sting's songs. Sting's watching and going, oh, like, okay, bad cover band. Ever heard it? If they're playing that tune just terribly, is it the Beatles' fault or is it the bad cover band's fault? We have often played the hymn of Christ out of tune and in broken ways. But Christ, his song is glorious. It's perfect. Also, under this category, unforgiveness and repentance, sometimes what keeps us from community is an awkward situation we need to apologize or somebody needs to apologize for us, so we avoid. But by avoiding them, we avoid the crucial interaction that will help restore a relationship and draw us into Christ-likeness. If there's somebody you're avoiding, watch out. Have the conversation. This is why the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25, the following incredible words. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and, and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the story coming to an end, all the more, all the more. See, Paul helps us with our practical application. Paul, whoever wrote, whoever wrote Hebrews. Um, they help us here. We are to confess Christ as our living hope, speak with each other about this truth. We are to consider how to stir up one another, to provoke our affections for this Jesus and stir each other up to good works, to live wisely in his world as his apprentices. We are to meet together, to be in the presence of the king with each other, to encourage one another. Just as the BLT crew has so encouraged the Bennetts, just as I was saying, uh, Laren encouraged me this past week, just as so-and-so encouraged you and, and gave you some spark and some, some life in your soul this week when you were tired. We are to do these things increasingly. Now how? How do we do this life together? The how is going to be one simple sentence, okay? One simple sentence, but it's loaded with all sorts of stuff. Do you, do you ever realize, ever notice as you read through the New Testament, like Jesus is always eating. Like he's always eating. They even accuse him like, dude, you party all the time. You're always stuffing stuff in your mouth. He's always eating. He's always at a table. If we are to live life together, we need to get to the table. Get to the table. I mean this in two key ways. First, Sundays we gather as the body of Christ for community worship. And this is a sacred time and we need to reimagine what this is. Because this is heaven and earth meeting that shakes and moves and, and freaks out the principalities and the darkness in this world. This is the body of Christ, God's people, his kids with his spirit inside them coming together to proclaim Jesus Christ as the risen Lord over all creation. Hell shudders in fear. Heaven shakes with joy and light is dispersed into a dark world. That's what we get to be a part of. 
That's what it means to gather as the saints, to proclaim him as as king. We need to reimagine the sacred space where we have the grace of God minister to us. As we sing in harmony, the grace of God minister to us through his word, by his spirit. The grace of God minister to us as we come to the table and repent of our sins and celebrate what he's done on our behalf. Now, That's Sundays, that's the gathering, but it's also throughout the week. We are to get to the dinner table with others. We are to get to the lunch table with others, to get to the breakfast table with others, to get to the coffee table with others, or be like a hobbit and get to the second breakfast table and the Levensies table. Get together and take this literally and and metaphorically. You, You eat with those you are living life together with. Live life together throughout the week. And, and sometimes we need a structure to help us with that, which is why we push calm groups and talk about them all the time. Get in a calm group. Get, it, get a structure in your weeks, a rhythm in your weeks to get with people and get rid of the excuses of, of doing it, of not doing it. Like get with the people. And you might go, well, that seems so artificial and like, that's not my style. You know what? Um, vines are organic but they need an artificial structure called a trellis to bear a lot of fruit. Consider a calm group like a trellis to the organic life of God moving up and out and through you and other people so he can bear fruit in your lives. Join a calm group. We're not trying to sell you on something. We we just want you to flourish and bear fruit. Get that vine off the ground. Get to the table. Get to the table. And look, I want to be honest about this. Sometimes when you get to the table, it's super messy. Super messy. Almost every night, we corral three kids, get to the table, wash your hands, then get to the table. And I like to tell you that it's like always amazing, all smiles, sweet interactions. <laughs> it is so not the case. I mean, there's food dropped, there's water cups spilled, there's somehow macaroni and hair. Like, there's complaining about the food, one, wanting hot dogs. When there's marinated steak and chicken, there's passive-aggressive comments. There's bickering back and forth. There's crying. Sometimes it's the kids. Usually it's me. There's preferences. There's bumping into each other all over the place. And, and there's selfish requests interrupting people's stories. And I know you're really tempted right now to think I'm talking about the church, but I'm talking about my dinner table. So many similarities. Sometimes when you get to the table, the meal is sweet, my friends. And it's a glorious time of communion. And sometimes it is a chaos fest and you hold on in love to each other through the whirlwind of emotions and dynamics because you love each other and you're in it to be in it to the end. Get to the table. It's where you are nourished. Get to the table. This is where you are known. Get to the table. This is where you know others. Get to the table. This is where you grow. Now with that, um, I want to take us back to Rublev and his painting of the Trinity. Get your eyes on it again one more time. The divine community here, three and one, one and three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son in the middle, leaning towards the Father. The Spirit leaning towards both of them. The cup of sacrifice in the middle with the blessing of the hand of Christ on the cup. It's just awesome. For Rublev, and so it should be for us. The story of Abraham fellowshipping with God points us to Jesus. And look how he shaped this. This is incredible. 
Look how he shaped this. Do you see the hidden but not hidden shape? Do you see the hidden but not hidden shape? Behold the brilliance that points to life together. It is the chalice. It is the cup of communion. Do you see it now? He has so shaped the form of the three and one and the one and three to outline a chalice. And there sitting in the cup is Christ, the son, the sacrifice, the one whose blood was spilt and body broken that we could feast on him, have forgiveness and enter into the family, fellowship with the father through the spirit because of his work so that we could be one. One with our creator. Friends, Jesus, Jesus invites us to the table. Get to the table. Get to the table and enter into my joy. That's what he tells us. He's our father. That means in Jesus we are brothers and sisters and called to live a life together. Living in a confessing community of knowing and being known. So beloved, let's get to the table. Father, we are so blessed that you would come and dine with us in and through your Son by the power of your Spirit. And we are so blessed that we get to come to this table right now. And as we do, Lord, would you help us to speak the truth, to confess our need, and to offer our our great joy, our thanks for what you have done, Lord Jesus. So may we, may we eat now and experience your grace in a powerful, powerful way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.